so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Was that your best girl voice? I wasn't trying to sound like a girl. <laughs> 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 I thought you said, I thought Uh-oh. you said, Poor what's your favorite breakfast? Poor, <laughs> Poor guy. Wow. Man. That, I mean, when you said it, I didn't think, I didn't think, wow, he's talking in a very effeminate voice. It sounded but, like you, it no, sounded it valley did. girlish. I don't, I don't think what's did. your favorite breakfast? Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and with me this week in his wool coat, even though it's supposed to be 60 degrees outside, is Brent, always cold Leatherwood. Is that going to be my new nickname? Yeah. Always cold. <laughs> I practiced that intro three times. Now I knew I was going to do that. Most normal functioning people, which is not you, would consider 60 degrees to be a tad bit chilly, a tad bit brisk outside, especially with the wind blowing. I don't know that I would say so. brisk. Now with the it's wind brisk blowing. brisk outside. See, look at the wind yes, outside right now. It's not wool coat material, but it, it's not like shorts material, unless right. you're like so our audio producer who lived in Boston. Right. He actually showed up in the studio in a swimsuit this morning. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> All right. Before I digress, let's talk about what's been happening lately. And we will start with what the ERLC has been talking about this week. First up is an article that I actually had the privilege of doing. And it's an interview with my friend Brenna, who I went to seminary with. It's titled, Remember Those Who Are in Prison, an interview with Brenna Norwood about the Heart of Texas Foundation, prison ministry, and the power of Jesus. So Brenna and her husband, Grove, are involved in this ministry. Grove is the the founder and CEO. And the heart of this foundation is the Texas Field Ministers Program. And I'm just going to read a little bit of a description to you. This program focuses on men and women with extremely long prison sentences and consists of two related parts, education and service. So they are students, these men and women are students uh, within the Heart of Texas Foundation and their College of Ministry, and they pursue a Bachelor of Arts. And then upon graduation— They're sent in teams of two or more to serve as field ministers for the remainder of their sentence. And this being a field minister is actually an official job title within the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, and it allows them to reach men and women in the inner prison with the gospel. I think this is an example of an amazing ministry. As Brenna says in her interview, you know, prison— is a really dark place. And these men and women that they work with are there for very long sentences. And they've some of them have done horrible things. And 
while they are behind bars physically, the gospel of Jesus is coming in and through the power of the Spirit, setting them free. And they are, in turn, taking that good news to other people. And it is just amazing what Brenna and her husband and those who work with them are a part of and what they're seeing happening. And I wanted to end this description of this article with this paragraph. When we visit the prisoner in the name of Christ Jesus, his grace is built into that visit so that it's a blessing, not just for the one in prison, but for the visitor as well. Prison is an awful dark place, yet the light of Christ shines brightly there among those who are his. It's not easy to go. Going has a way of refining all of your deepest held beliefs about life. We have found that only Christ and the work of the cross restores us after each visit." I think that just speaks to the hardship of this ministry and what these men and women endure, but also the power of Christ in the midst of a necessary calling. That's right. In the Heart of Texas Foundation, they do such good work uh, year-round, but that is uh, it is especially appropriate this month of April to uh, highlight their work because— most people may not realize it, but April is Second Chance Month, and uh, this was something that uh, was started a, a few years ago. As a matter of fact, President Trump was the the first president to officially sign the proclamation announcing April is Second Chance Month, and this is basically the culmination of a lot of great work done by our friends over at Prison Fellowship, and they have continued that now for the last several years, uh, making sure that April is officially designated Second Chance Month. And it's just a month where we try and highlight prison ministry and uh, the fact that uh, we want our justice system to actually be restorative. Too many times, it, I mean, and the stories are all over the place out there, uh, where, where folks who are leaving the justice system, they come back into society and, and they are not restored. They are not in any ways uh, better off or able to come back into society and, and be a, a contributing member. And organizations like Prison Fellowship, Heart of Texas Foundation, they're coming alongside these individuals in the justice system who have, in many cases, committed just horrible crimes. And they're trying to come alongside them to give them that hope uh, so that when they do finish their sentence and they, they come back into society, they are not just rehabilitated, but they are restored with the hope of Jesus Christ. And so uh, we appreciate the good work uh, of these folks. Well, and as Christians, we are the people of second chances. And so while not all of us will be called by God to be involved in prison ministry, certainly all of us can be supportive of it because we know the God who has given us a second chance to be made right with him through Jesus. Next up is an article by Marissa Postel, and it's titled, What is Abortion Tourism? If you haven't heard this term, this is one you should be familiar with, especially in light of uh, the Mississippi abortion case that will be heard or that will be decided by the Supreme Court this summer. So I'm just taking some of this information from Marissa's article. In 1970, prior to Roe v. Wade, which was decided in 1973, New York repealed all laws criminalizing abortion, and this gave birth to abortion tourism in the United States. This is where people go to neighboring states in order to receive abortions because they cannot receive them in their state. It's a horrible thing. But a major shift to this industry began last year with that Texas Heartbeat Act that we have talked about that prohibited abortions in Texas as early as six weeks. And so with this decision in Texas came a rise in abortion tourism. From September to December 2021, 
nearly 1,400 Texans a month, which is just crazy. That's a lot of people, went to surrounding states, Arkansas, Colorado, Kansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, New Mexico, and Oklahoma, to have abortions, according to research from the Texas Policy Evaluation Project. And what this tells us is that if the Mississippi abortion case, which is Dobbs, uh, is what it's called, if that is decided in a way that overturns the precedent set by Roe and Casey, then abortion tourism is going to be on the rise. Again, states are already seeking to remove penalties for abortion. Many states are. And so as Christians, as churches, we need to be prepared to help. We need to be prepared to step in and help vulnerable mothers with unplanned pregnancies see that abortion is not their only option, that does not have to be a choice that they make, but that they can choose life for their child and they will receive support that they need, whether um, to raise that child or whether they make the choice to choose adoption for their child. Churches have to be on the front lines of this. If we are truly pro-life, we need to be proactive. And it seems impossible to be prepared, but the Lord has just raised up an incredible pro-life movement, people with a passion for everyone involved in an unplanned pregnancy situation, all the parties involved, and he's already done so much work, and I know he will give us grace uh, in order to see these vulnerable children saved and moms and dads ministered to. Marissa points out in the piece that uh, companies such as Citigroup are already supporting abortion tourism by offering to cover travel costs for U.S.-based employees seeking an abortion, and both Lyft and Uber, the car ride companies, have both announced last year that they would cover any legal fees drivers face for serving as a ride for women to an abortion clinic, and that, that was specifically uh, related to Texas. And then we also remember, I think last fall, we talked about these proposals that were coming from Governor Newsom's office to essentially welcome folks to California that has some of the most pervasive uh, abortion laws, and and basically invite them to stay in a hotel, go to Disney World, and get your abortion. Uh, I mean that that <laughs> that is talk about abortion tourism. They're trying to take tourism dollars uh, as these these women are are coming, being enticed to come to their state and spend tourist dollars. Like that is heinous, heinous, and it, it is tragic and lamentable that we are heading down this path. We will cover a little bit more of this in the culture section as uh, as one state has uh, taken a, a new approach to uh, combat abortion. So we'll we'll revisit this, but needless to say, abortion tourism is a is a real thing and uh, definitely encourage our audience to read up on this. And finally, we have an article from our colleague Alex Ward and it's about uh, the person who our Washington DC office is named after, the Leland House. It's titled, What Can We Learn from John Leland's Life? An interview with Eric Smith about religious liberty, cultural engagement, and evangelism. And Alex and Eric Smith just shine a light on John Leland at the times that he was raised in, which spanned the swath of time that he was alive, spanned a lot of changes. And so he witnessed a lot of changes, both culturally, religiously, and he has some funny stories too, like uh, he's best remembered for giving a 1,200 plus pound wheel of cheese to Thomas Jefferson. Did you know this? Mm -hmm. And he had purported negotiations with James Madison to include a bill of rights in the United States Constitution. So th these are things that I would expect 
Brent, you to know because you know all of these nerdy. Well, I would facts. expect you to know just because we've we've actually talked about them before on the podcast. No, we have not. Oh, we have. I would remember. Big block we, of cheese day. We have actually talked I about I would this. have remembered if we talked about a 1,200 pound of, <laughs> pound of cheese. But anyway, I wanted to pull out this, this little bit from the article about people from today, what we can learn from John Leland's life. And Eric Smith says, John Leland was, even though he was known for religious liberty, his advocacy there, he was first and foremost an evangelist. He spent the majority of his life preaching the gospel up and down the Atlantic coast. And he was proudest of the... 1,524 converted individuals he led into the waters of baptism. And Eric Smith goes on to say what we can learn uh, from him about engaging in our culture. And he says, Leland engaged in politics largely to ensure that Americans would enjoy the freedom to preach and to respond to this gospel. Unlike many of his contemporaries, he didn't want the state's assistance in establishing churches. He didn't fear the changes in American society or the diversification of the American population. To the end of his life, he maintained that if the gospel is simply turned loose in a free marketplace of ideas, it will prove itself compelling time and time again. I think Leland encourages us to spend less time wringing our hands over the state of the culture and more time sharing the gospel with confidence in its power to change hearts. Mm. It's just powerful, powerful last few sentences, and I think words that we really need to hear and believe and take heart today. Yeah, that's so good. And that is just going to blow the minds of all of the outrage artists uh, that are out there that just want to continually uh, get on their soapbox and decry culture. And culture's bad. Look, but culture's been getting worse since Genesis 3. So uh, this is not something that is new, uh, but I love what he says there. Just make sure that we can have a free exchange of ideas, and when the gospel is put forth in that free marketplace— it will show itself to be true time and time again, and people will respond to it. So we just need to be living as if that is true. Uh, we need to be living as if the gospel is true because we know it's true. Uh, and so often out there, I think you find folks who are living as if, oh, maybe maybe the gospel has lost some of its luster. Maybe it's a little old-fashioned. Uh, maybe it just doesn't have answers for the big ethical dilemmas that we're facing today. All of that is bunk. The gospel is the truth, capital T, and, and people will respond to it. We have seen it over the ages, and that is not going to stop at this moment, no matter what we have technology-wise or whatever folks are redefining here or there. The gospel is truth, and we should live as people of truth. Yes, and that doesn't mean that we're not called to push back the darkness, but we don't do so from a place of fear. Mm, mm -hmm. We don't do so from a place of our enemies being the flesh and blood around us, but as the Lord tells us in Ephesians 6, that our enemies are the unseen principalities and powers of darkness in the heavenly places. We do so from a place of faith, like you said, trusting that the gospel is powerful. God doesn't need our help. He wouldn't even, if he had chosen not to use us, the gospel could still go forward, but he has chosen to use us. And, and so we can rest in his power and in his heart to save. So as you can see that we have got some really good, helpful articles on our site this week. I know I always say that about our articles, but I believe it. And I'm glad that we get to uh, provide these types of resources to educate and equip us as Christians, the church, to be able to respond to our culture in a distinctly Christian way. 
Uh, I would encourage you to check out what else we have on our site. But for now, Brent, that's your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. Moving into our culture section this week, Brent, why don't you give us a rundown? All right, I will. And and our stories this week are kind of a smattering from all over culture. I know you like that word. I do like you the like word, that word. Smattering. All right. Well, let's uh, let's start with something that's going to happen a little later in the day on Thursday, which is the U.S. Senate is poised to confirm Ketanji Brown Jackson to the U.S. Supreme Court. This first story comes to us from NBC News, and it states, The Democratic-controlled Senate is poised to make history on Thursday by confirming Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson to the U.S. Supreme Court. She is all but guaranteed to win confirmation, with 53 senators having indicated their support in a procedural vote this week. The total included all 50 Democratic voting senators, along with Republicans Susan Collins of Maine, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, and Mitt Romney of Utah. If she is confirmed, Jackson would be expected to take office this summer at the end of the court's current term after Justice Stephen Breyer officially steps down. They are anticipating that he will finish out the term. Uh, Obviously, as uh, folks who listen to our podcast know, there are some major Supreme Court decisions coming up. Uh, He has participated in all those oral arguments, and so Therefore, uh, the belief is he would participate in all the writings of the opinions and various dissents and whatnot. Uh, and the the term typically expires about the end of June. And so I think we could anticipate that uh, should Judge uh, Jackson win confirmation, as she is expected to, that she'll be sworn in probably sometime around early July. Needless to say, look, there's going to be a lot of people out there uh, who have raised uh, legitimate uh, differences in terms of their judicial viewpoints uh, with Judge Jackson. But as we have talked about here previously, this is going to be a historic moment, uh, and we should appreciate that uh, for what it is. If if we can't be a people as Americans who are able just to, to step back from our legal, philosophical, political differences and just appreciate history when it is uh, being made— and we've we've kind of lost something, a, a sort of essence uh, of what it means to be America. Uh, so, but this is this is a moment uh, that that we all should should appreciate uh, for what it is. And uh, the great news is, right? So for for those of us like you, Lindsay, and and me who who find ourselves more on the conservative end uh, of the the spectrum, Judge Jackson's confirmation and ultimately her her swearing in are actually not going to change the numerical makeup of the court. This will still be a conservative-dominated court, which ultimately I think is actually really good news. That is good news, although we've seen the rulings haven't always gone as we thought with a conservative-dominated court, um, but we have celebrated some wins, and we do pray that we celebrate a major win here this summer with the Dobbs case. But all that to say, I'm not qualified to speak on these things, I just agree that regardless of the political, philosophical differences, we can celebrate this historic moment in time if she is confirmed to the Supreme Court. A lot of black and brown little girls will see representation up there on the Supreme Court, and that that's a really neat thing and speaks to, though we have a long way to go, how far we have come as Absolutely. a country. Absolutely. All right, the, the next item is something we kind of talked about in the previous section is news being made at the state level on the abortion front. And this one comes to us from Oklahoma. Uh, this story is provided by Axios. 
A bill that would make providing an abortion a felony is heading to the desk of Republican Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt after it was approved by the state's House of Representatives on Tuesday. The bill passed SB 612, that's the the designation of the bill. It bans all abortions unless they're necessary to save Axios's words here, pregnant person's life. We know that that's biologically, that's a woman. Uh, A person found guilty of providing an abortion would face up to 10 years in prison and a $100,000 fine. Oklahoma abortion providers have seen an increase in patients from neighboring Texas seeking abortion care after that state passed its law last fall. Planned Parenthood clinics in Oklahoma reported a 2,500% increase in Texas patients compared to the previous year during the first four months of the state's six-week ban being in effect. Later this summer, the U.S. Supreme Court is set to reconsider the landmark Roe v. Wade decision that established the right to an abortion. And this is just the latest uh, bit of news uh, as it relates to abortion on the state-level front. So you have this Oklahoma law. You have a, a proposal in California that is currently being debated uh, that in some instances, it almost seems like it is going to legalize infanticide because it talks about no one being criminally liable if a child, after it is born, is basically uh, dies from exposure or neglect, which is, that is heinous. And you've got other states considering other measures. So this is where we are. The U.S. Supreme Court's decision uh, in the Dobbs case Very likely, though, you know, we are hoping that they would actually use this occasion to affirm a constitutional right to life for preborn children. But more than likely, uh, where this is headed is the state or is the U.S. Supreme Court saying that abortion is not a federal issue. It is an issue that uh, states uh, have the ability to decide on their own. The open question will be, will there be any sort of uh, restrictions. Uh, we've talked about this previously on the podcast, known as the viability line. Will the will the court weigh in 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 that respect? Uh, but otherwise, are are we looking instead for the court to say that the states have the ability to regulate? And so, if it does that, what you're seeing play out now is very likely going to continue, where different states are arriving in different places based on, you know, the prevailing uh, values and norms in those states. And so you may have states that look a lot like a a Tennessee, a Texas, or an Oklahoma, where there are active measures to restrict abortion and essentially regulate it out of uh, being. And then you're going to have states like California. Uh, We've already talked about its its permissive nature uh, and its open nature inviting uh, folks who are abortion-minded to come to the, to California. Uh, this is, I think, a lot a lot of people. If the Supreme Court comes back and says, "Yeah, Roe versus Wade, Casey, the 1992 Supreme Court decision," th- those are no longer operative. Uh, and this is a state level. Quite, there's going to be a lot of people that that celebrate that, and it, it certainly will move the ball forward. But I think we have to realize that in many cases, it's going to mean that at the state level. There's going to be a lot of new proposals and a lot of hard work that has to be done in order to save lives in those particular states. So we're close to entering a new 
time and a new chapter uh, in the discussion about abortion in this country. And look, we, as pro-life Christians, we need to keep articulating a message of life. Uh, we need to be going out into the public square and helping everyone in every state, in every uh, municipality, every locale know the preborn child has inherent worth and dignity and deserves to be protected and defended and deserves to have the ability to take its first breath. And we, we can't let up now. We cannot let up now. And honestly, I don't think that we will. I mean, I think that the Lord has raised up and is continuing to raise up people with pro-life passions. And um, really, I just wanted to pipe in here to point people to a resource that we have about things like this and, and leading up to the Dobbs case, the Mississippi abortion case. So you can keep all of this information straight because I know it can be overwhelming. It is to me at times. And that we will have a link to it in our show notes, but it's erlc.com backslash Dobbs, D-O-B-B-S. Uh, and that will be a place where we even have an interactive map that you can click on a state and find out uh, what abortion access is like in that state. It's a good resource for me. It's helpful for me. I hope that that you will find that helpful as well. Okay, moving uh, away from that part of the world and into Baptist life, uh, there is some significant news that has occurred since we last uh, recorded uh, in terms of folks being nominated for SBC president. So I'd, I'm not even sure that we got to really discuss in detail, but Florida Pastor Willie Rice had been nominated to serve as the next SBC president. Just as a reminder, each year Baptists gather at our annual meeting and uh, select an SBC president. Typically, traditionally, it's been, uh, even though it's voted on yearly, it's generally been the custom that the individual selected will serve for two years. This year, Pastor Ed Litton uh, from down in Sarah Land, Alabama, has decided he's not going to run again. And so that's why you have individuals, uh, announcements being made that individuals be nominated. So uh, Willie Rice, it had been publicized that he was going to be nominated. However, he has now since withdrawn his name. So that's what I'm saying. We haven't even been able to to talk about his nomination, let alone withdrawing. Uh, so Baptist Press has this, Florida Pastor Willie Rice has announced he will not seek the nomination for SBC president at the upcoming 2022 SBC annual meeting. The announcement followed a release from him on April 1st containing what he called sensitive information concerning a deacon at his church, Calvary Church, uh, where he's senior pastor. In a Twitter post on April 6th, Rice said, the last few days have been very difficult, and I found myself in an untenable position of watching people I love in a church I love done immeasurable harm simply because my name was being considered for this office, Rice said in a statement. My calling is to my local church, my family, and to the mission field God has given me. I wish to return my time and attention to those things. In brief, one of the deacons at his church was found uh, to be, and this was known by, by folks at the church, uh, to be involved with sexual sin prior to him giving his life to Christ. And he has not been allowed to be near any of the children's or student ministry, but he has shown himself to be doing good work in other areas in the church. But however, the the pressure that was built on some of these revelations that came out, that is what has caused Pastor Rice to withdraw his name here. Now then, uh, just as we were coming on the air, a new nomination has been put in place, and that is Texas Pastor Bart Barber. 
uh, he will be nominated for SBC president. So BP also has this. Southern Baptist Convention Pastors Conference President Matt Hensley announced his intention to nominate Texas Pastor Bart Barber for the office of SBC president. Barber becomes the fourth announced candidate for the office this year, but only the third candidate who will be considered by messengers for the position, because Willie Rice has announced he will not. Other announced candidates include Florida Pastor Tom Askell uh, from down in Cape Coral, Florida, and Robin Hadaway, Senior Professor of Missions at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, Barber is pastor of First Baptist Church, Farmersville, Texas, and he will also serve as the chairman of the Committee on Resolutions at the June meeting, a position he was pointed to by the current SBC president, Ed Litton. So, needless to say, there's been a lot going on in SBC life uh, here coming uh, ahead of our meeting in Anaheim in June. This is this is typically the time of year uh, when these sorts of announcements will be made, but uh uh, Southern Baptists uh, have a, a big decision ahead of them in terms of who is going to be in that position of SBC president for, if we get back to the custom, the next two years. You know, I will be sad to miss being at the SBC this year in Anaheim. My uh, husband has a work conference that happens during the exact same time on the same side of the country, actually, just further up. But uh, I know y'all will have a great time. It's always interesting and has been the last several years, especially. Uh, Bart Barber, I don't know him well. He's written for us, for our site. But, you know, I have seen him, have come to know, quote unquote, him on social media. And I, I love the idea of him being nominated for a president. And I love how he interacts on social media. He is always, he's no nonsense. He seems to be full of wisdom and good humor. And he, it seems like he uses social media uh, to build up rather than to tear down. And I I do appreciate that. And I just have heard people speak well of him throughout the years. So I, I'm excited about that development. That's right. I'm not excited about someone from Texas taking more of the spotlight, though. <laughs> I feel like Texans are taking over. So... I will say that much. <laughs> there you go. As those of us in Tennessee say, Texas is just a colony of Tennessee. Is that what you the said? The first colony. The first colony. First colony of Tennessee. Yeah. So it's it's inferior to Tennessee. Would you I, say well, that? I, hey, I, wow. That's a major, I mean, I sta- that's I'm, a bold statement. I was, well, I don't I want wasn't. the Texans coming after me. But. <laughs> I'm just saying it's, it's Tennessee's first colony. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. All right. Uh, this next bit of news also comes to us from Baptist Press, and and it is, uh, it is, it is heart wrenching. It is tragic, and the title says it all. Gun down seminary dean was trying to walk to safety. A friend says, evangelical seminary dean Vitelli Vinogradov was fleeing Russian occupation of Buka attempting to walk 10 miles to safety in Kiev when Russian forces killed him and left his body on a local street, a close friend and ministry associate told Baptist Press. Vinogradov had been missing since March 6 when he left his Buka home, attempting to walk to the office of All Together, a Christian pro-family ministry in Ukraine, where he served as a board member, uh, said its leader. Quote, it was really dangerous at the beginning of March because— from the 1st of March, Buka was totally occupied by Russian soldiers, and almost all people who were trying to escape the city to go out of the city 
were under a risk because Russian soldiers did not allow anybody to move, even just to walk. Uh, he continued on March 4th. Vitaly called me. He was leaving Buka. He asked if he were able, if he could walk from Buka to Kiev, about 10 miles, to move to our office to stay there because it was really dangerous to stay in Buka, uh, which was already occupied by Russian troops. Uh, Vinogradov had limited options of walking to Kiev or finding a car because he had no personal transportation. So he chose to walk by us communicating with friends as he left his home. Very sadly, his body lay on the street beside that of a fellow believer and friend, Olive Grishenko. Their bodies were among hundreds of tortured bodies found in roads and parks and in hastily dug mass graves in the Tri-City area. The latest official count was 410 civilian casualties. So, obviously, I mean, we, we've talked at length before about the sort of Baptist link with Ukraine, the, the unique Baptist link. And there are, uh, y- Ukraine has the second largest Baptist population in all of Europe uh, after only uh, the United Kingdom. And uh, I can't tell you how many conversations uh, we have had with folks who have actually been on mission trips to Ukraine. So there, there's just a, there's a unique connection that makes this particular horror that is being perpetrated by Vladimir Putin and the Russian military against Ukraine just makes it more personal. Uh, and then obviously you read stories like this where someone who is a believer – uh, and is a, a leader of the evangelical community over there, uh, just being needlessly killed. It's heartbreaking. There's there's really no other word for it. And um, when I read stories like this, it it gets me all the more angry uh, about these atrocities that are being committed against the Ukrainian people. Uh, and it's it it all goes back to Vladimir Putin's warped view of Russia. Uh, and warped uh, sense of conquest. That's that's what this is all about. And uh, we we don't need to let this fade in our minds. Uh, we don't need to grow accustomed to this sort of atrocity playing out in the world. And um, honestly, there's no other way to put it. Not just what has occurred here, but what is occurring across Ukraine. It, there is more and more evidence of uh, these being war crimes. And that needs to be confronted. It's so tragic. There's not much more I can add. There was a meme, I think you would call it a meme, circulating on Twitter about the little boy, Sasha or something, that was one of a couple hundred children or maybe less than that who have died since this war started, I think. Anyway, just it just humanizes it, like you said. It's tragic. And the war crimes need to be confronted, although as we've talked about because of Putin's delusions, he doesn't care. You know, he might be proud mm. to be assigned war crimes. So what I do hope it would make a difference. At least we can recognize what it is. But it's just tragic. And I just pray that the Lord would just have mercy and put this to an end quickly. Right. If you're like a lot of people out there, you might be asking, okay, what what is a war crime? How does it apply here? In very basic terms, uh, war crimes are uh, intentional violations of humanitarian law that have been previously agreed upon by the you know community of nations around the globe. Uh, there is a formal process that goes into investi- documenting, excuse me, documenting and investigating potential war crimes, and those are uh, sent to the International Criminal Court. We will actually have 
a Baptist press story coming later this week on war crimes. I provided a statement for it. We've got some other uh, individuals within SBC and Life that are providing some some helpful guidance on how to think through war crimes. So I, I expect that that will be a really helpful resource uh, that is coming later this week from Baptist Press. Okay, so turning from that, honestly, there, there's no real good segue, but the final story uh, for, for today is that opening day for Major League Baseball is finally here. I know, Lindsay, you are looking forward to it as much as I am the world's biggest Braves fan, the bravest brave of them all, I think the is what you called brave. me. I think uh, I was yawning as you were saying that. I was looking no, forward no, to it. No, no, that was what you called me. I know, but in, I was I yawned. Back into the Braves won right, the World Series. you're the bravest of Braves fans. No, I was saying, I was yawning as you were saying, Lindsay, I know you are as excited as I am. Oh, well, that's appropriate, yes. But anyway, so I've, I've linked to a story here uh, that says, beginning with seven opening day games on Thursday and continuing the rest of Major League Baseball in action on Friday, it's time to welcome in a new year on the diamond. And they've asked several of their experts uh, to weigh in on, on what they are most excited to watch and to make fearless opening day predictions. Here are my fearless uh, predictions. Lindsay Nicolay, go ahead and jot down these, the date and all that so you know that I'm I'm right. Uh, the Braves are going to repeat as right. world champions. Mm-hmm. Look, I've been saying that for the last 25 years, and I got it right last year. So right. it only uh, took 25 years. And their their all star second baseman Ozzy Albies, he's going to win the National League Most Valuable Player. So Lindsay, what are your fearless uh, predictions? I predict that I probably will not watch one baseball game all season. Wow, that's not really fearless. That's just that's just kind of like your own little cozy yeah, reality. I just can't unless I was going to take a nap. I just I do like to go to a baseball game mainly for the snacks. I like to watch it with other fans. There you go. Okay. All right. So, but not I'm by gonna, myself. So I'm going to figure out the Braves uh, day game schedule and I'll, I'll put it up on the TVs here in the office. And we can we can watch. I was just yeah. going to say, well, why don't we'll just you just have, have a whole, Meredith? We'll just have a whole staff. Why don't you have Meredith party? cook for me, and then y'all can just have me over to the house. We could do to that. watch it. Yeah, we could do that. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe, maybe while the rest of us are out in Anaheim, uh, you can come over, and you and Meredith can watch a game. Yeah, together. I can help there her with the kids. I'll just bring my two crazy kids. Too. That's right. All right. Well, as I said, this this week in culture was just a little bit all over the place, and so with that though, there is your look at this week in culture, Lindsay. And now it's time for the lunchroom, where we tell you what we're talking about with each other. I'm going to start first, because I know what yours is, and so we can just banter about that. Well, yeah, because mine is rad, and yours is, nobody's going to know about it yet. No, but that's, I'm a culture maker. I was going to say, you're an early adopter. You're an influencer. (laughs) It's not true. But there, I always talk about shows, because that's what Justin and I do at the end of the day, when we're trying to get Marion to go to sleep and stop coming out of her room while we eat dinner and ice cream. So this is a show on Apple TV, and it's called Slow Horses. And just a warning, there's some language in there. But it is about a team of British intelligence agents, MI5, uh, but they're the rejects. So they're the ones who have messed up, and they're sent to this operational center called the Slough House or something is what they call it. Anyway, so they just get given just the dirty jobs and the extra jobs and the jobs nobody wants. 
But of course, they're going to redeem themselves, I'm sure. I mean, not the, the whole series isn't out yet, so you can't watch the whole series yet. But so far, it's good. I've enjoyed it, except for the language that's in there. So you just have to be aware of that. But if you're looking for something to entertain yourself, that might be an option if you like British crime shows, which I do. Oh, well, I like stories about the MI, MI5, or the MI6 now. I don't know, but it's MI5 here. Okay. I, I've never really, I, I should know this, uh, how it, how they designate it from one number to the next. But anyway. Why should you know that? Uh, because I feel like You don't live in Britain. No, but I feel like, I feel like that, you know, as a, as an Anglophile, that I feel like that's something I should, I should know. Yeah. You've, you've uncovered something about me that I wish had not been made public. Yeah. You don't, you're not up on your British intelligence agency. Right. Exactly. I, I think that's something I need to know. <laughs> or maybe you're just pretending and you really are a British intelligence agent working undercover. Mm. If so, you've, you hide your accent. Well, trying to figure out how this means I get to drive around faster cars than my Aston truck. Martins, like James Bond. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I could go for that. Yeah. Yeah. Keeping with your American cover story, though, why don't you tell us what your lunchroom is? The Masters. I'm sure everybody is very well aware of it. The Masters is here. Uh, and I am thankful for that. Meredith and I, uh, as as much as we actually enjoy the game of golf, uh, we we definitely do not get out there and play it. Or as I was joking earlier, I don't, I don't actually play golf. I, I call what I do attempt it. How can anyone enjoy the game of golf? Because you are outside, you're you're walking, you are, outside. You are it's so good. You're trying especially to hit the, a little ball into a hole, it's uh, maddening. Especially, and you'll appreciate this, in the middle of the summer when it is oh, cooking that's outside. No, it, that's fantastic. So, anyways, there's no there's no vendors where you can get snacks like every other game. No, they they have they have a person that comes by on a huh. on a golf cart that's got all that stuff. But anyways. So the Masters, which is you know the the seminal uh, event of uh, golf that takes place each year down in Augusta, Georgia, it is happening this week, and a lot of folks are going to be paying attention to the attempted comeback of Tiger Woods, and rightfully so. I mean, he's one of the greatest golfers of all time. But uh, again, as, as we were talking off air before we we started. My fearless prediction for the Masters is that he actually won't make it to the weekend either. A because he won't make the cut, uh, which, you know, you have to attain a certain low score in order to to play into the weekend. Or B, and I think this is more likely, because the pain in his leg will be so bad that he will have to withdraw. That's what I'm thinking. Uh, most folks may not remember, but about a year ago, he almost lost his leg. Uh, so the fact that he's even able to walk around and and take the massive, powerful swings that he takes... Uh, that in of itself is kind of a medical miracle, but the Masters is challenging, and so we, we will see. But he he's coming in apparently with good spirits, and he's optimistic. And I mean, he's he's won it five times, so um, but he wants to win it for the sixth so that he can tie Jack Nicholas. It's hard to think that he doesn't believe he has some kind of a chance because don't you think he'd rather? I don't bow think you out can be, be humiliated. Yeah, I don't. I don't think you can be as good as he is or, you know, any athlete is in their particular sport at any time and not think you don't have a chance. I mean, Michael Jordan probably thinks he could get out there on the court right now and put up some halfway decent numbers. I don't know. He doesn't look the same. Didn't you watch that documentary? 
Yeah. He's aged like all of us do. I'm not sure he'd have the same ups. But you mentioned— Do- he, he looked pretty good to me. <laughs> you mentioned uh, <laughs> You mentioned golf, this course, being difficult. Like, it, it's hard. The putting is difficult. It's hard to imagine it being difficult. You're just walking everywhere. Yes, the undulating greens. Yes. It just is. I mean, you think of all these basketball, uh, speaking of Michael Jordan, and football players. I mean, that's difficult. Walking around greens just doesn't seem... No, it's difficult. It's difficult. It is. It doesn't seem difficult. You've got a caddy. You're not even carrying your own bag. You've got... got, That's what I was just saying, the undulating greens. You've got these... You've got these uh, uh, putts that have, like, double breaks. Like, I mean, that takes some significant skill to be able to read that right. You know, people like me, I just go out there, and I just try and hit it in a straight line, and and it will actually go through the breaks. Not even, you know, the ball doesn't even— Yeah, yeah. I end up scalding it, and it goes off the green, and I get get mad. I get that skill, but you're talking about it being physically difficult. Yeah, it's physically difficult. To walk? It's because golf is a game of precision. Lindsay. You're just walking. You're not carrying anything. You're walking. And as a person who is, by profession, a uh, wordsmith, I would think you could appreciate the precision that golf takes. So Yeah, that's why I appreciate your, your that. precision with words, difficult. just put it on the golf course. <laughs> <laughs> difficult describing it physically does not work for me. <laughs> it's so hard for me to walk around on the green undulating hills or whatever they're called. I don't know what yeah. that means. Yeah, I know you don't. Okay. But well, anyway. That's all right. Anyways, it's Masters Week. It is it's, Masters Week. It's opening day of baseball. Ah, it's Life a, it's is a, good. It's a good time of year. 60 degrees outside. Not, that's not good. But, you know, that, that too will. This, too, this season, it too shall pass. You need to get yourself a good Arnold Palmer tea and lemonade. Yes. Just enjoy these good American pastimes. Yes. I, you know, I may go to Chick-fil-A and get their sweet tea and lemonade today just to celebrate. Do you know what they call that? Yeah, why don't they call it an Arnold Palmer? Because that's probably trademarked. Maybe. It's a Sunjoy. Yeah. And a pimento cheese sandwich. Have you ever had a pimento cheese sandwich? Yes, I okay. have had a pimento cheese Because that, they are famous at uh, Augusta National. Oh, at the National. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's what they serve there. Anyways, uh, we are way past time to end this podcast at this we point. Are. And so... Yeah, but I I think it's a good place to end. Go to Chick Fil A, get yourself a Sunjoy, and enjoy watching the Masters. That's right. Just a reminder: you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. The ERLC podcast is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is hosted by Lindsay Nicolay and Brent Leatherwood. Technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. And in addition to listening to the ERLC podcast, be sure to check out our other ERLC podcasts. The Digital Public Square airs every Monday, and its host is Jason Thacker, who is one of the leading voices on technology and ethics. And if you like staying informed about important policy decisions that matter to Southern Baptists, Capital Conversations is our podcast directly from Capitol Hill, which is hosted by our colleague, Chelsea Sobolik. Search for The Digital Public Square and Capital Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content.